Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the Doctrine, Dogma, and Davide podcast. As you can see, if you're watching the video version of the podcast, I am back in my old home studio. I am back in the United States, and I once again have a bookcase behind me, which, of course, is the source of all my powers. Now, today we're going to be jumping back into my rebuttal of Mike Gendron, for those of you who don't know, because I guess you haven't watched the first three episodes of this series. Mike Gendron is a former Catholic, now evangelical Protestant, and I'm responding to a talk he gave to Resolve Bible Church where he alleges that Catholics are not true Christians, and this is part four in the series. If you want to go see parts one through three, uh, go ahead and just pause the video and take a look and then come back. The video will wait for you, I promise. And in this episode, we're going to be responding to his claim that Catholics and Protestants allegedly worship a different Jesus. So without any further ado, let's go ahead and jump right back into the video. The third difference between evangelicals and Catholics is we worship and trust a different Jesus. The biblical Jesus provides eternal life. Roman Catholics don't have that because their Jesus only provides conditional life. That's why when you witness to Catholics, one of the great verses to open up with is 1 John 5.13, where John writes to those who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. You can know right now that you have in your possession eternal everlasting life. So, first of all, Catholics do believe that Jesus Christ provides eternal life. And even people like Mike Gendron believe that Christ's salvation is still conditional upon faith, that we must accept Christ as our Lord and Savior in order to be saved. And so, in a certain sense, yes, we do believe that Christ's salvation is conditional, but it's essentially, it is a free gift from Christ to all who are willing to accept it. And the question here is, what is necessary in order to accept God's gift of salvation? Is it faith alone, or must we also cooperate with that faith through our works and keep his commandments? Now, he cites 1 John chapter 5, verse 13, which states, quote, I write this to you who believe in the name of Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. And that is wonderful because he is writing to a specific group of people that they who believe in Jesus Christ may know that they have eternal life. But in that same letter earlier on in 1 John chapter 2, verse 3 through 6, he states, quote, And by this we may be sure that we know him, if we keep his commandments. He who says, I know him, but disobeys his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word in him truly, love for God is perfected. By this we may be sure that we are in him. He who says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. And so John in his letter, yes, he is saying that those who have true faith in Jesus Christ do indeed have assurance of everlasting life. But he also specifies in that same letter that part of having faith in Jesus Christ means keeping his commandments. And if we do not keep his commandments, if we violate the laws of God, then we will not be saved just because we say we have faith. And so Christ freely gives, he freely offers salvation to everyone, but not everyone accepts his offer of salvation. 
it is necessary to accept Jesus Christ in thought, word, and deed. This is why, actually, at the Catholic Mass, when the Gospel is read, we make a small sign of the cross over our foreheads, over our lips, and over our hearts. And this is to symbolically remind us that we pray that the words of Jesus Christ may always be on our minds, always on our lips, and always in our hearts. Because we must accept Jesus Christ not just in thought, not just in word, not just in deed, but in thought, word, and deed throughout our lives. The biblical Jesus provides the complete forgiveness of sin. The Roman Catholic Jesus only a partial forgiveness. There's always residual sin that remains. Some of you may remember when John Paul II died. They flew eight different Roman Catholic cardinals into the Vatican to offer the sacrifice of a mass to get a holy father out of purgatory. The mass is said to be a propitiatory sacrifice that reduces time in purgatory. So this particular accusation reminds me of something that actually John Calvin said, who was one of the reformers. He alleged that human beings are like piles of dung and that the mercy of God and the forgiveness of God are like is like a powdering of snow that covers over the dung heap and makes human beings look as though they've been purified when actually deep down human beings uh, are still wretched and piles of crap. But in contrast, Catholics do not believe that the mercy of God is just a powdering of snow that covers the dung heap. It is total and complete and true forgiveness of our sins. Now, what he's referring to here is, I'm sure, the doctrine of purgatory. But purgatory is not a matter of whether or not you have been forgiven of your sins. Purgatory is for those whose sins have been forgiven. But just because you've been forgiven doesn't mean that there isn't a just punishment that you still have to pay for your crimes and for your sins. Imagine if someone committed a grievous crime against your family. Let's say somebody murders your father or your mother. You would be, of course, obligated as a Christian to forgive that person for their murder. But that does not mean that you would not still demand justice, that the person would pay a just penalty for his crimes. The same is true for Christ. He forgives us of our sins, but he still demands a just punishment for those sins. And this punishment is what we call purgatory. And this is alluded to in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 12 through 15. It says, quote, Now if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, stubble, each man's work will become manifest, for the day will disclose it, because it will be revealed with fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work which any man has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If any man's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. So Paul here is writing to the Corinthians and saying that uh, all of your works will be tested and anything that is not properly built on the foundation of Jesus Christ will be burned up and that you will suffer loss, but you will still be saved as through fire. And so Paul is clearly indicating here that even the saved, if they have deeds to their name which are not in line with the teachings of Jesus Christ, if they have wicked deeds for which they still need to atone, then they are forgiven, but they are saved only as through fire, that they suffer loss for those sins. 
The biblical Jesus provides a permanent right standing with God. Hebrews 10:14, by one offering, he has made perfect forever those who are being sanctified. Catholic Jesus provides a continuous striving to gain God's acceptance. So Mike Gendron here, I believe, is articulating the belief that once saved, always saved, that there is nothing you can do to lose your salvation. And as evidence, he brought up Hebrews 10, 14, which says, quote, For by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. Now, I honestly find it surprising that he decided to use this verse to try to justify his once-saved-always-saved theology here, because what it says is that by his offering, he has made perfect all those who are sanctified. And the way I read this is, who are those who have been sanctified? Those who have been sanctified are the souls in heaven, the saints, because they have been perfected. The, the scripture says, by his one sacrifice, Jesus' sacrifice on the cross, he has perfected all of those who have been sanctified. You can't really argue that it is referring to those of us who are still on earth because it's very obvious that those of us who are still on earth have not been perfected unless Mike Gendron is going to claim that he is perfect, that he is without sin, that he is without flaw, that he is without any mistakes or errors in his life then he cannot claim that Jesus Christ has truly perfected him yet because he has not received his final sanctification. He has not been made perfect because he is still a flawed man. This passage is referring to the permanent state of sanctification of the holy souls in heaven. And as far as Catholics believing that we are continually striving to gain God's acceptance, it's really more that we are continually striving to accept Christ. We don't have to do anything to earn Christ's love and acceptance. I've heard it said that God loves us just the way we are, but he loves us too much to leave us there. And so we work and we strive and we pray and we sacrifice so that we can become closer to God and so that we can open up our hearts more and more to accept God's offer of salvation by our thoughts, words, and actions. Some of you grew up Roman Catholic, you know what I'm talking about here. It's like being on a treadmill, always doing the best you can to try and gain God's approval, but going nowhere. So I want to respond to this because I'm, I'm sure that there are Catholics who actually do kind of relate to Mike Gendron's characterization of feeling like you're on a treadmill, constantly striving to gain God's approval, but going nowhere. Because honestly, like when you're going through a period of spiritual desolation, like there, there are times when you can't necessarily feel God's presence, where you can't see him acting in your life, where you don't necessarily feel close to Christ. And those times, those periods of your life can be very difficult. And it can be very disheartening when you don't feel like your efforts are being seen, like your prayers are not being heard. And so to, to any Catholics who do kind of feel like you're running on a treadmill and going nowhere with regards to your relationship with Christ, what I would recommend is, one, you should probably get a spiritual advisor who can help uh, guide you in your quest to become closer to Jesus Christ. And the other thing I would recommend is a sort of a, a return to basics, just sort of like remembering the fact that Jesus loves you. Jesus loves you more than you could possibly imagine. And in spite of all of your failures, in spite of all of your sins, in spite of the fact that maybe you feel like you're not going anywhere, Jesus is pleased by your efforts to please him. 
Jesus is pleased by your efforts to keep the commandments. Even if you fail from time to time, even when you feel like you're not making any progress, Jesus still loves you. And Jesus will always love you. And another good piece of advice for dealing with periods of spiritual desolation like that is to increase the amount of time that you spend in prayer. The fact of the matter is, when you don't feel like your prayers are being heard, that's the time when you need to pray the most. That's the time when you need to just place your trust in God, even though you might not be feeling him in this particular moment. So if any of you out there watching feel like you're on that treadmill and going nowhere with regard to your relationship with Jesus Christ, just remember, Jesus sees you, Jesus loves you, and Jesus is pleased by your efforts to please him. The biblical Jesus provides peace and assurance. The Catholic Jesus, uncertainty, fear, doubt, and a false hope. When I worked for Ross Perot, I got on an airplane every Monday morning to go sell computers. Every Monday morning, I had this great gripping fear. What if the plane goes down? Will I end up in hell or purgatory? So I have never experienced the Catholic Jesus providing me uncertainty, fear, or doubt. Rather, I find that in the periods of my life where I am experiencing uncertainty or fear or doubt, Jesus Christ is my surety. He provides me with peace and assurance that so long as I remain in a state of grace, then I will be sanctified at the hour of my death and enjoy the glorious kingdom of heaven, even if I first have to be purified by the cleansing fires of purgatory. And I'm sure it feels very nice to believe that you would be saved no matter what you do, that in the words of Martin Luther, that you could commit adultery against your wife a thousand times in a day, and it would not affect your justification before God. I don't think that that is borne out by the scripture. I don't think it's true. If you've ever been into a Catholic church, you know that their Jesus is depicted in one of three ways. He's either a dead man still hanging on a cross, a helpless babe in the arms of his mother, or a lifeless, inanimate piece of bread called the Eucharist. In all three of these depictions... He is unable to do anything for Roman Catholics. So I really find it just absolutely incredible that Mike Gendron here says that Christ dead on the cross can do nothing for Roman Catholics. When it was by dying on the cross that Christ did everything for me. Christ did everything for me on the cross on Calvary. The idea that Jesus Christ dead on the cross cannot do anything for me, cannot save me. Like, that, that's just insane. Jesus Christ on the cross at Calvary took my sins upon himself and gave me the offer of eternal life. To say that depicting Jesus Christ in the single act that saved humanity is a depiction of Christ who can do nothing for us is so absurd. Well, in the Roman Catholic Mass, I want to share a quote with you that is really heart troubling. But this is what every Roman Catholic priest believes they have the power to do. When the priest announces the words of consecration, he reaches up into the heavens and brings Christ down from his throne and places him upon our altar to be offered up again as the victim for the sins of man. Was Jesus a victim or did he lay down his life voluntarily? So I'm going to take this a little bit piece by piece. So first of all, I, I had never heard of Father O'Brien until I watched this video by Mike Gendron. 
And I eventually managed to track down the source of this quote in his book, The Faith of Millions. And I will say that Father O'Brien is speaking somewhat hyperbolically here. And so I do want to clarify a few of the things that he's saying in this quote. But first, Mike Gendron complains about the use of the word victim, that Jesus Christ was the victim as though being a victim means he was unwillingly put on the cross rather than being a, uh, a voluntary sacrifice. But the word victim simply means one who is offered up in sacrifice. In the Old Testament, the victims were the lambs and sheep that would be slaughtered in sacrifice to the Lord. And so Jesus Christ is the paschal lamb. He is the spotless lamb. He is the victim. He is the sacrifice of the new covenant. Victim doesn't mean that he was put there unwillingly. Victim means he is the one who is offered up for the sake of the sins of the world. It is a power greater than that of saints and angels. The priest speaks, and lo, Christ, the eternal and omnipotent God, bows his head in humble obedience to the priest's command. So once again, in this quote, Father O'Brien is being hyperbolic just to emphasize just how significant and just what a beautiful gift the Eucharist is to us. But when you take it out of context like this, it does require a little bit of clarification. So first of all, when the priest offers up the holy sacrifice of the Mass, Jesus is not offered up again. It is the one single sacrifice of Calvary that is simply perpetuated through all times and spaces by means of the Catholic Mass. The Mass does not re-sacrifice Jesus. It brings the one and totally complete, totally sufficient sacrifice of Jesus and makes it present for us so that those of us who are not at the exact time and place of Jesus' crucifixion can be there and witness and worship at the foot of the cross. And when he says that it is a power greater than that of saints and angels, I would point out the fact that saints and angels have no need of this power because they are already in heaven. They have the beatific vision. They have no need to uh, have Christ made present for them because they are in the presence of the Lord already. But this power was given to the apostles, and the apostles passed that power on to their descendants through priests and deacons and bishops by the laying on of hands that whatever they bind on earth is bound in heaven, and whatever they loose on earth is loosed in heaven. And so Jesus gave the priest special powers to act in persona Christi, in person of Christ, so that he could come down and continue to be with us, even after ascending into heaven. And when he says that God bows his head in humble obedience to the priest's command, he's not expressing that the priest has a sort of compulsory power over God, that, you know, he is more powerful than God in some way, as though he's forcing God out of heaven and back down to earth. This is not the case. No one can compel the Almighty God to do anything. But the Lord made this promise and gave this gift to us through the Catholic priesthood so that Christ could come down and be made present for us. It's sort of like if we pray to the Lord for blessings, we are not forcing God to bless us in any way, but we know that he does because he promised that he would be with us always. In, in a similar way, when the, when the priest says the words of consecration, he is not forcing Jesus to come down and be with us, but we know that he does because the Lord wants to spend time with us. He wants to be with us. And so that we could act in accordance with his command that we eat his flesh and drink his blood. This is the quote-unquote miracle of transubstantiation. They continue on an altar what Jesus finished on the cross, calling the omnipotent God back down from heaven, denying the bloodstained words of our Savior, it is finished. 
Yes, Jesus said it is finished. His sacrifice was complete. That does not mean that we are finished, that we are done with God, or that there's nothing left for us to do. Because yes, Jesus' sacrifice is finished, but we still need him. We still need that sacrifice. Well, the Catholic Church says the sacrifice of the Mass and the sacrifice of Calvary are the same sacrifice. But are they really? Calvary was offered by the sinless Son of, uh, Son of God. The Mass is offered by a sinful man. So, yes, the, the Mass is offered up by the priest, but it is offered by the priest in persona Christi, in person of Christ. It is God acting through the priest that brings about the miracle of the Mass. So, ultimately, it is Jesus Christ offering both sacrifices, but in one case, he is acting through the priest. That doesn't mean that the priest is ultimately responsible for the Mass. It's still Christ acting. Much in the way, like, let's say I say a prayer and you are healed of an illness or an infirmity. Did I heal you or was it God acting through me that brought about that healing? It's a similar phenomenon here. It's not the priest by his own powers offering the sacrifice of the cross on Calvary. It is Jesus Christ acting through the priest that is offering up the sacrifice Calvary was only for the living. The Mass is offered for the living and the dead to get people out of purgatory. Christ's sacrifice was offered up for all of humanity, past, present, and future, living and dead. If Christ's sacrifice was only offered for the living, then what happened to the people of the Old Testament, the righteous of the Old Testament? Are they all damned to hell simply because they were born too soon for Christ to save them? No. The fact of the matter is Christ died for all humanity and for the living, for the dead, for the past, the present, and the future. It is the one perfect sacrifice perpetuated through all time and space. Calvary was one perfect, finished, and all-sufficient sacrifice. The Mass is offered thousands of times every day, and they are insufficient. Once again, when we offer a new Mass, it is not a new sacrifice. It is the one perfect, finished, sufficient sacrifice of Jesus Christ on Calvary, again, perpetuated through all time and space. Calvary was for all sin. He died once for all sin for all time. The Mass is only for past sins. This is why Catholics are mandated under the penalty of mortal sin to come to the sacrifice of the Mass every Sunday because the sins they committed in the previous week must be paid for during the propitiatory offering of the Mass. So receiving the Eucharist does bring about a remission of venial sin, but that's not why we go to Mass every Sunday. The reason we go to Mass every Sunday is because God commanded us to keep holy the Sabbath. The Sabbath is Sunday, and so we go to Mass on Sunday to worship God. That is why we go to Mass not so that we can, you know, go and pay for our sins. Jesus told us to confess our sins and said to his apostles, whatever sins you retain are retained, whatever sins you forgive are forgiven them. And so for that, we have the sacrament of reconciliation, the sacrament of confession. Calvary was a bloody sacrifice. The mass, bloodless. Don't you find this just amazing? The one element that is efficacious and purifying sin is taken out of the Mass. The Bible clearly says without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. There is blood at the Mass. Take this, all of you, and drink from it, for this is the chalice of my blood, the blood of the new and eternal covenant 
which will be poured out for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this in memory of me. These are the words of consecration that are said at every Mass, and that is the point that the precious blood is made truly present in the Eucharist, in the chalice. And if you want further proof of this, look no further than the hundreds and hundreds of Eucharistic miracles, where in addition to the substance of the wine and bread changing to flesh and blood, the accidental properties, the physical properties, also change to be visibly flesh and blood that were then studied by laboratories to confirm that it was indeed flesh and blood. The Mass is not truly a bloodless sacrifice. So Catholicism clearly has another Jesus. He did not satisfy divine justice. He did not provide direct access to God. You know, one of the miracles that took place at Calvary when Jesus gave up his spirit, the veil separating the holy of holies from sinful man was torn open from top to bottom, showing that now through faith in the shed blood of Jesus, we have direct access to the Father. We no longer need sacerdotal priest offering sacrifices that can never take away sin because Jesus Christ, the perfect High priest offered himself the perfect sacrifice to a perfect God who demands perfection. And then he cried out, it is finished. We have direct access to the Father through the one mediator, our Lord Jesus Christ. He is God's perfect man and man's perfect God. No one else is qualified to mediate between God and man. He did satisfy divine justice and he did provide direct access to God. Quite frankly, I don't see how you could get more direct access than sitting in his actual literal physical presence than to actually kneel before the physical body, the actual physical presence of Jesus Christ. You don't get more direct access than that. He did not make believers perfect forever, the Catholic Jesus. Once again, this accusation is very confusing to me. Is Mike Gendron claiming that Jesus Christ has made him perfect, that he no longer has any flaws or sins for which he has to atone or with which he has to contend? Really? We are not perfected until we die, receive final justification, and are accepted into heaven. The fact of the matter is, it is, quite frankly, completely obvious that Christians are not perfect on earth. The Catholic Jesus did not secure salvation. Catholics have no assurance. So he did not secure salvation for those who do not accept his offer of salvation. He offers salvation to everyone. But in order to be saved, we must believe in him and we must keep the commandments. Scripture tells us that we must have faith and we must have works. The epistle of James chapter 2 verse 24 states, You see that a man is justified by works and not by faith alone. This is the word of God. You see that a man is justified by works and not by faith alone. Anyone who rejects this fact is rejecting the word of God. So the true Jesus died once for all sin for all time. There are no more offerings for sin. Hebrews 10, verse 10, 12, and 18. Oh, if only Catholics would read Hebrews chapter 10. It totally destroys the Roman Catholic Mass. No, it doesn't because the Catholic Mass is the one sacrifice of Jesus Christ perpetuated through time and space. So the rest of this section of his talk gets really repetitive and redundant, and so I'm, I'm not going to continue point by point the way I've been doing, but I do just kind of want to synthesize the crux of his argument and respond to it, just sort of to, to wrap up and in conclusion. 
So one of his main arguments throughout this section has been that if you require anything other than faith in order to enter heaven, then you are rendering Christ's sacrifice somehow insufficient, that Christ's sacrifice just wasn't good enough to save us. And I, I find that argument to be very weak. After all, if Christ's sacrifice was truly sufficient, then why do we even need faith? Why can't Jesus save everyone regardless of their faith? And the answer is, of course, because Christ does not save everyone. He offers salvation to everyone. So when Mike Gendron essentially says that Catholics believe that Christ opened the gates to heaven and now we must all do our part, that's essentially what he believes too. The question is, what does it take for us to do our part? Is it faith alone or is it faith and works? Well, scripture says faith and works. It is repeated over and over again that we must have good works and good deeds to our name, that we are judged according to our deeds in the scriptures. And I'll read just a few of them. Do you wish to be shown, foolish fellow, that faith apart from works is barren? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered his son Isaac upon the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by works, and the scripture was fulfilled which says, Abraham believed God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness, and he was called a friend of God. You see that a man is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in the same way, was not also Rahab the harlot justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out another way? For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so faith apart from works is dead. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Also another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books, by what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead in them, and all were judged by what they had done. And by this we may be sure that we know him, if we keep his commandments. He who says, I know him but disobeys his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word in him truly love for God is perfected. By this we may be sure that we are in him. He who says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor the drunkards, nor revelers, nor robbers will inherit the kingdom of God. And so scripture over and over and over again repeatedly affirms the necessity of good works and of keeping the commandments in order to be saved. If you have unrepentant sin, then you will not be saved, even if you have faith. Scripture is quite clear on this. And over and over and over again, Scripture repeatedly affirms that the sinners will face judgment for their sins, and that you will be judged not just according to your faith, but also according to your works. You will be judged according to what you have done. And so with that, I think I'm going to call it here. I hope this video was spiritually fruitful for you. It was helpful for you in some way. If it was, be sure to like, comment, do whatever it is people of the internet do. And also, if you think I'm off my rocker, feel free to let me know in the comments down below. Thank you so much for watching, and I will see you next week.